Today we're going to jump to a passage of scripture which has basically one of the first scriptures that ever got me thinking about this. And it's um, it's a fascinating portion of scripture about um, self-talk as it relates to our money and our possessions. I wonder if you've ever considered how much of your self-talk, uh, how much of the thoughts that you have swirling around in your mind from any any given day have to do with money and possessions. What should I buy? Uh, what do I own? How much do I earn? How can I earn more? What should I give? How much will I share? Will I get a portion of this inheritance? What are the markets doing today? Can I save? Will I be able to put away enough for retirement? Do I have enough to live on? And on and on and on go these um, concerns about wealth and possessions. In fact, a great deal of our fear and worry is associated with those very things about clothes on our back and roofs over our head and food on our table. And I was thinking, uh, as I was um, preparing for this, if atheistic self-talk is one of the most dangerous forms of self-talk that a person can engage in, I would suggest that self-talk regarding money and possessions is likely one of the most frequent topics that engages our minds. And I think if that's the case, then we ought to be about making sure that it is the Bible and biblical truths that inform our thoughts So that our self-talk on these issues is biblical and in line with scripture. The Bible, if you, as you know, if you've read it or portions of it, has a great deal to say about wealth and possessions and money. And underlying a lot of what the Bible says is a, is a core attitude that, uh, that we are to develop and, and, and cultivate in our hearts and lives that will help us shape our self-talk or sanctify it so that we think and speak rightly to ourselves about wealth and possessions, and that is contentment. Contentment is a fascinating topic, and the Apostle Paul actually tells us about contentment, that it is something that we have to learn. Contentment is just not something that we come by naturally. It's something that we have to learn. And we learn contentment, I believe, by um, uh, understanding the characteristics of God and the attributes of God, by understanding what the Bible has to say about money and wealth and possessions, where it comes from, who gives it to us, how we control it, what its usefulness is in our life. And so we have to learn contentment. I was fascinated as I was reading uh, about uh, various portions of Scripture that we, not only can we learn content, uh, contentment, but the Bible talks about those whose hearts have been trained by greed. So you can train your heart and your thinking towards contentment, or you can train your heart in greed. A foundational question then we need to ask ourselves is, is how do we begin to shape our thinking so that we tend towards contentment rather than towards greed. I want to give you three things very, very quickly. In fact, I'm not going to explain them as I did in the morning service. But these are, I think, are three very critical foundational points that we need to sock away in our hearts and minds and allow them to be one of the filters through which we filter all of our thinking about money and possessions. And the first one is simply God owns everything. We need to get that into our hearts and minds that God owns everything. The, the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all of those who dwell in it, the Bible tells us. And you will find this theme written everywhere through the pages of the Bible that God owns everything. The second foundational principle, I think, that is helpful for us to um, undergird our thinking about wealth and possessions is that God controls everything. 
And that, that goes to make sense. If God owns everything, then God controls everything. He determines where it goes. He determines who gets it. He determines how much somebody gets. He determines uh, just all the, the, the things that determine how his possessions are used. So God controls everything. God owns everything. And the third one is God provides everything. I think we need to understand this in our hearts and lives, that if God owns everything... And if God controls everything, then it stands to reason that God, therefore, is able to provide everything that we need. And in fact, you find that the Apostle Paul saying, My God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches in glory. It's a text that we sometimes take out of context, but the truth of that is everywhere recorded again in Scripture, particularly when it talks about wealth and possessions and money, that God in His riches is able to provide us with everything that we need. And so as we think about this particular text then that's before us this morning, I I want us to have at least those things embedded in our hearts and minds. God owns everything, God controls everything, and God provides everything for our lives. If these kinds of things are filters to our self-talk about money and possessions, we will make progress in the sanctification of that discussion that we have with ourselves, and we will make progress in moving towards contentment and away from greed. I want you to turn to your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, and it's a a parable that Jesus told uh, to a question that was asked him. Luke chapter 12, um, and I want to read from verse 13 to verse 21. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. It's a fascinating parable in the midst of a fascinating discussion. It seems like there was a substantial crowd that had been following Jesus and was always around Jesus. And he was talking to the crowd sometimes. He was talking to his disciples who were part of that crowd at other times. And it seems like somebody yelled to him out of the crowd, sort of an unidentified man, but he yelled out rather rather loudly. And it, it seems to be apparent quite quickly that this was the kind of guy that liked to be heard. He liked to give the impression that he was a certain way, but in reality, his heart was somewhere else. And so this man yelled out rather loudly to Jesus, giving the impression that he wanted justice, giving the impression that he wanted fairness. But Jesus goes right to the heart of the issue, to his intent and motive. 
And he says the issue of this man's heart and what he was worried about was not fairness and justice. In fact, it was greed and covetousness. The man is actually quite nervy. He doesn't ask Jesus to be the arbitrator. He actually demands that Jesus would do this. The, the, the word tell is in the imperative mood. And so he is commanding Jesus to take over this situation and make a judgment. And Jesus' response to him was fairly sharp, uh, at least in the Greek language. It was a, a way of saying man or, 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 or who are you to ask me this? And as you know, the text, as we read it, Jesus refused to become the arbitrator and judge. And in fact, we find Jesus very infrequently taking on the role of judging temporal affairs. Jesus was much more concerned with what's inside going on than he was with what's outside. And in fact, there's so much provision for us to get things settled outside that Jesus didn't need to be involved in that. Notice very carefully in verse 15 what he says. He said, he didn't address the man. He says, and Jesus said to them. I think it's a, an amazing transition that Jesus makes here because now he's taking the man's question and issue and he's saying, this is just not an issue of this man. This is an issue of the human heart. And so he broadens the scope of the application of the parable to all of those now who are able to hear. We don't know who them is. It could have been the disciples. It must have included them, and it certainly included the crowd. But he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Some of your Bibles will say all forms of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This is a worldview issue that Jesus is addressing. And if you think about this particular phrase, that life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, that is very distinct from the normal worldview that we see around us, which promotes that success and that happiness and that joy is found in the abundance of our possessions. Jesus uses two imperatives, two commands, which, which make us sit up. He says, take care. Be on your guard. In other words, watch out. See to it. Be careful. It's the language of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, where he says there, above all else, guard your heart. This is a reminder for us then to think, okay, there's something important and significant that Jesus is saying here to us. It's in keeping with what Paul will say a little bit later, and we'll look at this next week, where he says, take every thought captive. What Jesus is saying is don't let that kind of stuff rattle around in your head unchecked. Get a hold of it. He wants us to beware of all forms of greed or covetousness. I was thinking about we shouldn't let that phrase slip off our tongue and through our ears too quickly. If we had time, I'd love to just call out and have you say to me and give me some forms or some ways in which we covet or which we are greedy. It'd be fascinating to see what would be on that list, how we would define coveting or how we would define greed. And it is a very important thing to get a hold of because the Bible says that greed or covetousness is idolatry. It's worshiping something other than God. In Colossians, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
So Jesus is warning them here against idolatry in their heart. This is what I've been saying a number of weeks ago as we were introducing this topic. Um, when you get to the 10th command, it's a command against coveting. And the command is, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. What is coveting? It's a sin of the mind. It's a sin of our thoughts. It's a conversation that we have with ourselves internally about somebody else's stuff about somebody else's possessions. And so, in fact, what Jesus is saying is you need to sanctify your self-talk. Be on your guard against all forms of greed and coveting, which is internal. So this parable is an illustration, I believe, about how we talk to ourselves about money and possessions. The last phrase of verse 15 is rather jarring. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's fascinating. You will find this very same sort of worldview identified in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. There, Solomon, it says, and it begins Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he said in his heart, I am going to build bigger vineyards. I am going to build bigger palaces. I am going to build bigger gardens. And I am going to find joy and contentment in that. And at the end of verse 11, it says that he found out that it was meaningless. All was meaningless. And so it's important that we listen carefully to Jesus' comment that our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Is that what you tell yourself on a regular basis? One's life. This word life is a fascinating word. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There's two words that are regularly used in the, in the Bible for life. One of them more than the other one, but they're both used there. Uh, and they're, they're two words that are both translated life. One is bios and the other is zoe. The first word is a familiar word to us in the English language. If you know anything about a biography or about biology, it's the study of an individual's life or it's a, stu- a study of, of life around us. It refers really to our, our bone and flesh existence, what we share in common with the animal world. It refers to our physical life. The other word that we find in the New Testament translated life is a much richer word. And it refers to the qualitative aspect of our lives. What is it that makes your life full? What is it that makes your life complete? What is it that gives your life a sense of, 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 of wholeness? It's a, it's a word that then refers more to the quality of life. And so when it says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, which word do you think is used? And when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which word do you think Jesus uses there? And a little bit later when Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly, which word do you think Jesus uses there? Zoe. Quality of life. Fullness of life. Abundance of life. And so what, what, what Jesus is saying there, an abundant life or a whole life or a full life is not found in stuff. 
That's important for us to understand that and to reflect that and to talk to ourselves about that. Someone once said, man's greatest problem is not to add years to his life, bios, but rather it's to add life to his years, zoe. In other words, what, what, we're, what we should be about or what our greatest problem is, is finding wholeness or completeness or fullness in life. And we only find that in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus told us that in him we find abundant life. And so right away, we begin to understand that Jesus is setting the bar there for the people that he's going to tell this parable to, that if you want to understand fullness of life, you will not find it in stuff. In the summary, then, that verse 15 says, the desire of material things will prove insatiable. If you've ever tried to pursue that in your life, if you've ever tried to find meaning in your stuff, you will know very quickly that you will never be satisfied. You never have enough money in the bank. You never have enough cars in the garage. You never have a big enough house. You never have enough pairs of shoes. You never have enough books on your shelf. If that's what you're looking for to provide meaning for life, you will never find it. The second thing is that a dream of the abundant life will never be achieved through the accumulation of possessions or money. So then Jesus tells this amazing parable. And it's a fascinating parable. And I would encourage you to do this on your own because there's, there's something in me, although I've not found it anywhere, but I think that Jesus really draws on the life of Nabal in 1 Samuel 27 for this parable. The language is the same. The self-talk of Nabal and the, the, the phrases that Nabal uses, the accusation that he is a fool, all seems to be summarized in this parable that Jesus tells now to the crowd. And he says to them, he told this parable, the land of a certain man produced plentifully. Verse 16. The provision that we notice here is it's God's gift of wealth. I want to just say this off the top. Jesus never says that money is wrong. Jesus never says that being rich is wrong. Jesus never says that having possessions is wrong. We, we shouldn't read into this that this man was dishonest in any way or that somehow he had accumulated his money through shady means. What Jesus is talking about is an issue of our heart towards wealth and possessions. And again, notice that first sentence of the parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. I think that's a very deliberate phrase that Jesus used there. It's a subtle reminder that in the end, even this rich man's wealth was a provision of God. He may have planted the seed. He may have watered it. He may have fertilized the ground. But God is the one that provides the growth. It is God's land, and it is God that determines how that seed would grow. So in essence, Jesus is saying that God gave him an extra gift. That God blessed the work of his hands in a substantial way. It was God's gift of a blessing to this man. One of the things that I think is a great challenge for all people is a surprising windfall or an extra blessing or a bonus or a windfall that comes our way that is beyond what we normally expect because it presents a problem of stewardship. This is a perfectly natural dilemma that Jesus is describing here. What happens when, by no work of your own, you're particularly blessed? 
that, that God provides for you something above and beyond maybe what you're ordinarily accustomed to. Well, that's the problem here. What do we do with excess wealth? All of a sudden, this man has a problem. His crop is it's a bountiful crop, and it says that he thought to himself. Some of your Bibles will say he said to himself. He began reasoning with himself. The tense of the verb is in the continuous text, or a continuous tense, and it suggests that he did this for a little while. That maybe as he started to see that crop grow up, all of a sudden he started, wow, this is going to be a great crop this year. Look at how, how thick those heads of grain are there. And he started thinking in himself and planning himself. It wasn't just a, a snap decision, so to speak. And it's rather insightful in a culture where most of your thinking was done out loud with people in the city square. This man talked to nobody except himself. And he had a conversation with himself about his bumper crop. What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? Notice, after this time of thinking, we don't find recorded in there, well, I'm already wealthy, I don't really need this, what am I going to do with this? Or we don't find in there recorded a prayer, go, God, thank you for this incredible, unexpected blessing. I really don't quite know what to do with it. Will you show me or help me to use it in a way that brings glory to your kingdom and honor to your name? His self-talk was all about himself. He was, it's, it's the title, talking to myself when all that matters is me. So then he's got a dilemma. Okay, what do I do now in the present? Notice his plan. His plan is, well, I need to build bigger barns. I need, I need greater areas to store my stuff. Do you see how, how God's provision to him has now become my barns, my crops, my goods? If you noticed in your Bible, and you might want to take a pen and do this on your own or a pencil, circle how many times in the parable the word I and my is used. The word I is used six times. The word my is used five times. This guy is possessed by this stuff that he has. And they they expose this man's thoughts and thinking and demonstrate that he has a completely wrong foundation for understanding possessions and wealth. It's not God owns it. It's not God controls it. It's not God provides it. It's my barns, my crops, my stuff. It's exactly what Nabal said. When, when David's men came to Nabal, and Nabal was having this massive feast because it was a feast time. And so he had, he had all his family and, and servants around, and he was preparing this stuff. And David's men came to him, and they said, would you ask Nabal and say, you know, we've, we've looked after your, your sheep. We've, we've cared for them. We've never taken anything of yours. Now at this time of feast, would you at least give us something to eat? And Nabal's response was, shall I take my bread and my water... And my meat, which I have killed for my shearers, and give it to men from whom I don't know where they come from? He had that same sort of attitude that this was his stuff, and he owned it all. See, the man reasoned with himself about his barns and his crop. He talked to the wrong person. He talked to himself. He talked to his heart. And I've said so often over these last number of weeks that that is one of the most subjective and sometimes deceptive things to talk to is our heart. Again, understand, I'm not saying, and neither is Jesus saying, that he's criticizing wealth or that he's or that he's criticizing the fact that this man was a rich man. No, what he's saying is that this man is not using his wealth properly. 
He's not thinking about his possessions in a way that is biblical. He's not thinking about the needs of others. He's not thinking about the kingdom of God. He's only thinking about his present. What do you say to yourself when you consider your stuff? What are the pronouns that most often float around in your dialogue that you have? See, the issue here, as I said, is the notion of stewardship. It's an understanding that, yes, God has given me this stuff to look after and to manage and to care for, but in the end of the day, it's not my stuff, it's God's stuff. My clothes, my shoes, my cars, my homes, my bank accounts, my retirement funds, it's God's stuff, it's not my stuff. See, this is the biblical response that we ought to have to everything, that, that, that we don't call it our own. And I know it might be a semantic game, but we need to re- catch ourselves and actually think, no, this is God's stuff. And God has given it to me to steward and to manage. And one day he will call me to give an account for I, how I have managed and stewarded the stuff that he has given to me. I wrestled, if you read the rest of chapter 12 in Luke, it's a fascinating passage which we normally associate with Matthew chapter 6. But at the end of, uh, of, of the portion that Jesus is talking, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And then I've wrestled with this next line for a long time, and I still don't know the answer to it. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I think I could safely say this. It's not in the text anywhere, so understand this is me. Where your treasure is, there will your self-talk be also. So that was his plan for the present. Going to build bigger and bigger barns to store all this stuff. Verse 19 in the parable, he says there, And I will say to my soul, Soul? It's like saying, I will say to Paul, Paul? He's talking to himself. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. I'm set for life. His first dialogue, I think, revealed a lot about himself and his view of possessions. The second dialogue reveals a lot about his view of eternal life and of that day when he would meet God. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. I think of all the possessive pronouns that Jesus uses in the parable, this last one is the most dangerous and most fatal. He said to my soul. Who owns your soul? Where did your soul come from? God made you. Your soul belongs to him. God is the one that will determine at which point you, your soul, will stand before him and give an account for life. He had a completely wrong understanding of eternal life and about the nature of his soul and who possessed his soul. 
I have a, and I, I'm sure some of you have this secret sort of um, thing that you do when you read the newspaper, but you go to the obituaries. See, some of you laughing, you do that. It's not a morbid fascination. Rather, it, it's, it's actually, it, it's interesting to just read about the lives of people. Um, one of the things that I catch myself doing is I, I do, I look at the dates. And the scary thing is I find more and more dates of people that were born when I was born. But it's a reminder that we don't all live to 95 years old. It's a reminder that we can have the best plans for a long future, but in the end of the day, God knows the number of days that we will live, and it might be one day, or it might be 101 years. But we have to have a correct understanding of who owns our soul. The man in this parable was terribly mistaken about his soul. As a result, his self-talk was terribly deceptive. What are you telling yourselves about your soul? What we think about ourselves and life and purpose form our destiny. It's what I've been trying to communicate. It's what the Bible teaches us that, that the, the thoughts that you choose to dwell on, the thoughts that you use to, to interact with and form your inner dialogue will eventually be the things that determine your attitudes and actions and behaviors in life. If you get it wrong about your soul, you will get it wrong about a lot of things in life. We come to verse 20 of the parable and we find a sobering reminder here of actually who owns the soul. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Again, just to remind you because it can sound harsh, fool. That is not a comment on one's mental capacity. It is a comment about one's moral inclination and one's spiritual inclination. And so God is saying to this man, you have been terribly unwise spiritually. You have not thought correctly about ownership of possessions or of life. Tonight I am calling you home and you are going to give an account of your soul. It's fascinating that verb there required is in Greek, a word that is commonly used for the return of a loan. It's like the creditor is calling back the loan. It's like our soul is a sense on loan to us by God, and God is able to call back that loan whenever he chooses. Life is in God's hands. I was thinking about the soul a number of weeks ago. Um, from the book of Jeremiah, and I had been reading the book of Jeremiah through a number of times early in the year. I just, for some reason, I landed there. But I came to Jeremiah 6.16, and I, I stopped there for a number of days and just mulled this over in my hand. And God says there, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Where is the good way? And walk in it and find rest for your souls. I, I, I mulled that over again and again in my life. It seems that this individual had lost their way. It seemed like the people who Jesus was talking about had lost their way. We know what that's like in, in normal life. You know, what do you do when you lose your way? Well, if you're a woman, you ask for a direction. If you're a man, you don't. 
my wife came home, um, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, and she was rather shocked, but she said she had been out walking the dog, and she saw a man that was kind of dazed and confused and looking around, and he said to her, excuse me, ma'am, kind of, kind of sheepishly, I don't know where I am. Could you show me how to get out of here? And my wife was quite impressed that he had the courage to ask that, and she didn't find him the next day still walking his dog. But, but nonetheless, where, where do you go for help when you're spiritually lost? How do you get back on track? Do you ask for help? It's fascinating to me that the, Jeremiah says here that there are ancient paths. I think they're well-worn paths. Somewhat, they're, sometimes they're a little bit overgrown because they're not used so well, but they are well-worn paths. And I believe those ancient paths are the Word of God, are the truth that we find in Scripture. They might be, as they say, a little bit overgrown, but they're clear paths. And do you look for the good path? What do, you, what do you say to yourself when you're spiritually lost and you're trying to find your way back? Fascinating thing to me is one of the most dangerous things in our world today is, is now what used to be good we call evil, and what used to be evil we call good. And so it's a very difficult thing to find our way back to the good path. But again, the good path is found in Scripture. If you walk in the ancient path, if you walk in the good path, the scripture says you will find rest for your soul. Have you ever thought about what causes your soul to be restless? A restless soul? I think there's lots of things that, that cause our soul to be restless. Sometimes there's emotional strain. Sometimes there's physical strain. Sometimes we're just tired with life. But I, I think what the Bible most clearly points to when it talks about a restlessness in our soul is it's a soul that is disorientated from God. It's a soul that has gone on to the path of sin. And because of sin, there is guilt and there is shame and there is a conscience that is bothering us. And there is a restless soul. The Bible talks about those in, the, in some of the pen, pen, penitential psalms that you find. Uh, there's about six of the penitential psalms. And David would say that, that when I strayed from you, I had no rest. My body ached. My soul ached. He had no rest for his soul. I think it's significant that Jesus, I believe, picks up on Jeremiah 6.16 and uses it as this, one of the most beautiful invitations that he makes to mankind, to humankind. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Oh, it's such a beautiful, beautiful phrase. Rest for your souls. Primarily, you will find forgiveness of sins. You will find yourselves back on the ancient path. You will find yourself walking in a good way again. I think it was Augustine who said, our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee, referring to God. I think this man had a restless soul. He didn't quite understand it. He couldn't quite figure it out. He was like the people in Jeremiah who, after Jeremiah had said to this, come back on the ancient pathways, come back to the good way, and you will find rest for your soul. They replied to him, we will not walk in them. 
what defiance. We will not walk in the path that leads to rest. You can find rest for your soul today in Christ. The final thing that we see in this particular parable is the postscript. Uh, I love this phrase by Randy Alcorn. Um, I think it's in a number of his books, but it's certainly in the treasure principle. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. This This is a view that we need to embrace and talk to ourselves about as Christians. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This man had been consumed with laying up treasure for himself. And Jesus said, but he had not been rich toward God. There's a contrast presented here. Two ways of living, two ways of talking yourself. One is a, is a way that doesn't attribute ownership to God, doesn't acknowledge God in the era of finances and possessions. And it, and it seems that an individual like this says, no, my life does consist in the abundance of my possessions. It is this stuff that gives me meaning. It is this stuff that gives me security. But the problem is the more of this stuff that we, we build up and lay up, the more prone it is to corroding or to being stolen. 1 Timothy 6, eight says, But if we have food and clothing, with these we should be content. There's that word again, content. But those who desire to be rich fall into all kinds of temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and has pierced themselves with many pangs. That's the description of one who lays up treasure for himself. The other, though, is one who talks to themselves about the kingdom of God, talks to themselves about stewardship, talks to themselves about who owns their stuff. It understands that the fullness of life is not found, after all, in wealth and possessions. That can add a certain quality of life, but that does not add abundance of life. It's... The one who thinks that, 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 that thinks about other people and thinks about how they can use their possessions and use their wealth to support the needs of other people and to contribute to the kingdom of God. It's that kind of individual who understands and tells themselves that it's more important to lay up treasure in heaven where it will never corrode, where it will never be stolen, than it is to lay up treasure on earth. And how do we get there? Paul, writing to the church in where Timothy was at, says, as for the rich in this present age. I like that because he's already distinguishing between a present age and a future age. So as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Uh, Two things, eh? Charge them not to be full of pride. Look at what I have accomplished. And charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything, and I love this, not that we need, but with everything to enjoy. Loved ones, it's not wrong to have stuff. But where is our hope? Where is our trust? Where is our confidence? Where is our security? Do we know where that came from? Do we thank God for what he has given us to manage and steward for him. Then he goes on. He says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, 
and ready to share. And then note this, thus storing up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I love that because Jesus is saying life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And Paul is saying that life consists in being generous and doing good with the stuff that God has given us and laying for ourselves treasure in heaven. As Jesus said at the end of the parable, that is what it means to be rich toward God. So again, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. Rather than lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For as the Bible says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And just by way of reminder, by, for where your treasure is, there will your self-talk be also. Life is not found in serving our possessions. Life is found in serving God. Life is not found in laying up treasure for ourselves on earth is found in laying treasures for ourselves in heaven. It is found in being rich towards God. Is that how you talk to yourself about your money and possessions?